You don't orgasm in four-part harmony? Not usually, but challenge accepted. Welcome back to another episode of Lyrics for Lunch, the show that you met in a hotel lobby masturbating with a magazine. That is not true. <laughs> uh, I'm Vivian Rubenstein. I'm your host. I am a writer and a podcast guy and a movie guy and a musician. And I'm the teller of today's story, unfortunately, but I'm not going to ruin anything. Um, and I'm joined this week and every week by my amazing co-host Lindsay tucker hello hello how are how are you doing Lindsay? good 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 you know got the holiday overwhelm going on accidentally oh, yeah. drugged myself this morning you know <laughs> perfect so Lindsay's Lindsay's just like ready to go <laughs> um i'm doing fine how are you you broke your glasses today. Are I, these your I, new glasses? These are my new glasses. I broke my glasses today, and and this is actually a lyrics for lunch story. So I broke my glasses today. Put them on. Put my headphones on. Boom! This thing just like came came right apart. Um, and so I go find a place that does our glasses while you wait or whatever, and bought a pair of glasses. They're right here, and. Opened them, opened up the new pouch that I got mm-hmm. to clean them before you hopped on. And what do I see? A picture of ABBA. Of ABBA, no shit. And so I would like to read to you the back of the glasses, the, the, the glasses chamois that I just bought. Please. Stockholm in the 80s. Stockholm in the 80s inspired the music of f- and fresh vibes of this magical city. If you change your mind, I'm the first in line. Honey, I'm still free. Take a chance on me. How not to quote such a marvelous tune which made history? Stockholm was also the nest of disco music, and we should all agree that the fact that the ABBA, the ABBA, were the pioneers. The city during the 80s gave birth to a special music movement which followed happily all around Europe and gifted young people the chance to dance a new rhythm. It's fascinating on how many music groups were formed during this decade. Just to name a few together, with the ABBA, Stockholm saw the birth of Europe, Roxette, the Wannadies, Ace of Bass, and many others. <laughs> Not only music, but design, fashion, and art were spreading all around the city. Independent shops were flourishing. Fashion designers and young people were constantly attending the city. Stockholm became one of the most influential center, one of the most influential center in Northern Europe, setting new trends and lifestyle. Love that journey for you. Yeah. So we got a little, little Ace of Bass, a little extra Ace of Bass love. A little ABBA. A little ABBA. Oh, we'll do an ABBA episode one day. It was be a whole month of ABBA. <laughs> um, so tonight, what are we talking about tonight, Lindsay? Prince. Prince. And specifically Prince's song, Darling Nikki. Um, so I promised 
not to ruin any i promise not to ruin anything for anybody there are no nazis in this episode i think what's your relationship with prince well thank you for asking i'll tell you (laughs) uh when i was a kid my dad used to play this game in the car and a song would be on and he would try and get me to guess who the artist was and there would be prizes uh prizes that were out of the realm of real life so you know he would say for a thousand dollars and a trip to disney world who sings this song so one i always lost uh but one day we're driving it's dark and he says for forget what the the first prize was but the second prize was the trip to disney world now i had really been wanting to go to disney world he says who sings this song i'll give you one hint it's not a king or a queen and i said prince and then he took me to disney world oh that's so nice what song was it definitely don't remember (laughs) okay so darling nikki is a 1984 song by prince and it's on his album purple rain um so what do you know what is your history with the song uh nothing nothing have you ever heard the song before i don't know oh this is i am so excited <laughs> so this is like a reverse taylor swifting in that we're playing Lindsay the song for the first time so let's take a quick listen to darling nikki by prince You could say she was a sex fiend I met her in a hotel lobby Masturbating with a magazine She said, how'd you like to waste some time And I could not resist When I saw little Nikki grind Started to go. 
Okay. So, did have you heard the song before ever? I don't think so. Awesome. So, after listening to the song for the first time, what do we think this is about? A sexually liberated person, potentially a female, who <laughs> had some great experiences yes. with the singer. The singer the being writer of the song. Being you're 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 always you're always a little tentative with me now about the writer of the song. <laughs> it was Prince. Prince wrote the song. Okay. Uh so let's do a quick dramatic reading of the lyrics. This is verse one. Do you want to take verse one or you want me to take verse one? I'll go for it. Thank you. I knew a girl named Nikki. I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating with a magazine. She said, how do you like to waste some time? And I could not resist when I saw a little Nikki grind. She took me to her castle, and I just couldn't believe my eyes. She had so many devices, everything that money could buy. She said, sign your name on the dotted line. The lights went out, and Nikki started to grind. Nikki. The castle started spinning. Or maybe it was my brain. I can't tell you what she did to me, but nobody will ever be the same. Her loving will kick your behind, but she'll show no mercy. Show you no mercy, but she'll sure enough, sure enough, show you how to grind. I woke up the next morning. Nikki wasn't there. I looked all over, and I, all I found was a phone number on the stairs. It said, "Thank you for a funky time. Call me up whenever you want to grind." Damn, Nikki. Your dirty little prince wants to grind. Okay. So, so yes, this song is about a sexually liberated woman just just having a funky time with the singer. Love it. So, real quick, Prince Rogers Nelson was an American singer and instrumentalist. He's known for flamboyant androgynous persona wide vocal range he pioneered the minneapolis sound he was from minneapolis and his music incorporated funk r&b rock new wave soul synth pop jazz hip-hop everything and he most most of the time played every instrument on his recordings mm -hmm. so prince signed to warner records at the age of 19 and uh released the albums For You in 1978, Prince in 1979, Dirty Mind in 1980, and Controversy in 1981, and 1999 in 1982. And he had a backing band called The Revolution. So it was Prince and The Revolution um, for the first two albums or three albums. But we're going to talk about a song from his sixth album, Purple Rain, which is Purple Darling Nick. Purple Rain. So you know that one. Mm-hmm. This seems like a situation of parental censorship. Weird. Hmm. <laughs> if I had to guess. You don't, <laughs> but you did guess right. Uh, so this is from Diffuser. The, the, the headline of the article is, Prince's Darling Nikki Almost Leads to the Downfall of Society. Oh, of course. <laughs> so uh, this is from the... This is from the... the the article from a narrative perspective darling nikki is one of prince's most vivid compositions he encounters the song's protagonist in a hotel lobby where she's pleasuring herself with a magazine 
whether said magazine is being used as a visual aid or an actual device of pleasure is left up to the listeners. Okay, guys. Uh, this chance meeting leads to a mind-blowing sex, se- sex session. Nikki then vanishes, but not before, leaving her phone number and a note on the stairs, complete with an invitation to repeat the encounter, if desired, by Prince. This evocative, bluesy jam is punctuated by some of Prince's most feverish panting and screaming, as would befit the erotic lyrical content. So, there was a film made of the album. So, the album came out first, and then there was kind of an accompanying musical film created with the same name called Purple Rain. So, this is the clip from the movie Purple Rain where you kind of see what, how it's played in context with the, with the film. So we've got Apollonia watching Prince kind of grooving on stage with his band. So this is from Numero.com. It's kind of a play-by-play of what's what we're watching right now. Bare-chested on stage, Prince swaggers, glistening with perspiration in the crimson glow of an American nightclub. A crucifix necklace adorns his slender body as the languorous notes of darling Nikki commence. The metamorphosis of the star into erotic icon is complete. This torrid scene from Purple Rain, the spinoff from the eponymous album released a year earlier, is pure concentrate of the sex symbols imagery in the 80s in this somewhat awkward movie saved only by its insanely brilliant soundtrack prince gazes at a woman in the audience the tune darling nikki he sings is addressed to a certain apollonia catero who betrayed the singer by joining his rivals a band called the tie his character the kid bursts into song Eyes brimming with tears, crushed by regret and humiliation, Apollonia gets up and rushes out of the venue. She did look upset. <laughs> she she did she was upset. <laughs> Numero.com continues. In the film Purple Rain, Prince literally embodies the words of his track Darling Nikki, playing an unscrupulous provocateur, perfectly aware of how obscene his lyrics are. If crude phrases seem shocking, it's deliberately so, to highlight the awful behavior of the character. The embarrassing words have a function and are certainly not incidental. So, Numero.com is saying, like, we know that it's kind of lascivious and that's the point, maybe, that, like, we're supposed to be embarrassed by its lasciviousness. I don't, I don't know, I don't know if I agree with that. Well, we're sexually liberated people. Yes, we certainly are. Um, And I think that Prince just, wanted to have a funky time yeah um in the u.s alone purple rain sold 13 million copies and as of 2016 the record sold over 25 million copies worldwide that's tied with baby one more time faith by george michael true blue by madonna and joshua tree by you two Purple Rain also holds the distinction of being the sixth highest best-selling, the sixth best-selling soundtrack album of all time, just behind Grease, Titanic, Dirty Dancing, Saturday Night Fever, and The Bodyguard. Have you seen Grease yet? Nope, still haven't. That's lame. Well, I've I've seen the rest. Nope, I ha- I've only seen Titanic and Dirty Dancing. I also have not seen The Bodyguard, so maybe we should 
stage we'll showing. We'll do a, a, a viewing club when we yeah. do I Will Always Love You. Yeah. But not everyone loved it, Lindsay. Not everyone indeed. Not everyone loved Purple Rain. And specifically Darling Nikki. Oh, obviously. I think I already told you that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, a, real, a real spoiler. <laughs> so in 1985, an 11-year-old girl named Karina bought the album and was listening to it with her mother she got pregnant and they were like prince impregnated her with his words with his funky grooves uh her mother was later later quoted as saying the vulgar lyrics embarrassed the both of us at first i was stunned but then i got mad she wrote about this awkward moment in a book um millions of americans were buying purple rain with no idea what to expect thousands of parents were giving their album giving this album to their children maybe even younger than my daughter so she's not happy what about like love in an elevator uh i don't know when love in an elevator came out yeah oh yeah i also don't I don't love that song. But th- that came out four years after this. Okay. Or five years after this. So this mother, this angry mom, goes back to the store to try to return the record. But the store wouldn't take it back because it had been opened and played. And at Fair. that point... Yeah, right? It's not, it's not their fucking problem. But she was like... She like had a full Karen moment where she was like looking around the store, looking mm-hmm. at all the other records and she said she found everything from bubblegum pop to heavy metal songs about violence against women and killing police officers i'm sure she did i'm sure she did of course that woman was tipper gore oh my god tipper gore again tipper gore again this is the inception of tipper gore or what yep forbers <laughs> yes this is her this is her joker origin story oh shit former second lady of the united states and at that point wife of first term senator from tennessee al gore real quick tipper and al met at al's senior prom tipper came there with someone else met al there and they've been together ever since they made love to the sweet sweet sounds of the archies (laughs) sugar dun 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 tipper tipper She went to BU, Go Terriers, and she worked as a newspaper photographer even after Al was elected to Congress in the mid-70s. Love that Um, about her. And when he was elected as a representative, Tipper established a group to examine and write about social issues, and they were called the Congressional Wives Task Force. Tell me. Tell me of your face. What face are you making now? (laughs) It's just upsetting to me when women have to define themselves as wives. Mm-hmm. The, the, it's basically like the, the Congressional Wives Task Force sounds like a, like a sewing circle, right? A hundred percent. So the book that Tipper wrote of this account is called Raising PG Kids in an X-Rated Society. Kill me now. Oh, we got fucking 11 more pages of this, baby. This bitch should like uh, have to move to the Middle East sure great Uh, see what it's really like out there in the real world yeah so she says in this book like many parents of my generation i grew up listening to rock music and loving it watching television and being entertained by it i still enjoy both but something has happened since the days of twist and shout and i love lucy i shake it up baby now so here's the thing about twist and shout this is from business insider 
this this quote has been like recycled and recycled and recycled. This was like one of part of her stump speech, right? And so the Business Insider says the selection of Twist and Shout is odd because while somewhat more coy in the manner of early 60s songs the idea behind it is clearly sexual the beatles performed arguably the most popular rendition of the song which pro- which in which a primally ecstatic john lennon shreds his vocal cords beckoning a woman to come on come on come on come on come on baby now and the song climaxes with the entire group harmonizing a drawn out musical orgasm sick uh, that's a little bit of a stretch, but I don't think... Would we think call that, that an orgasm? Uh, 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 be a weird orgasm. Yeah. You don't orgasm in four-part harmony? Not usually, but challenge accepted. <laughs> so back to Tipper. <laughs> wow, we, we have a bunch of good pull quotes already for the <laughs> top of the show. So back to Tipper. She says, this is a book about the kinds of violent and explicit messages our kids are receiving through the media and what we as parents can do about it. I decided to get involved because I began to see the kinds of record lyrics that my children were being exposed to. It shocked me and made me angry. I started looking deeper into the problem and became even more concerned. A small but immensely successful minority of performers have pioneered the porn rock phenomenon. A Judas Priest song about oral sex at gunpoint sold two million copies. So did Motley Crue's album Shout at the Devil with lyrics like, not a woman, but a whore. I can taste the hate. Well, now I'm killing you. Watch your face turning blue. And Sheena Easton's Sugar Walls about female sexual arousal was an even bigger hit on top 40 radio stations. And Prince peddled more than 10 million copies of Purple Rain, which includes a song about a young girl masturbating in a hotel lobby. She seems really upset by female pleasure. I mean, I understand like devil and murder. That stuff's pretty bad. But, you know, just some innocent female pleasure. Mm Mm-mm. Yeah, and and so this is this is part of the problem. And uh, Sarah Marshall does a really good job explaining this on a on an episode of "You're Wrong About," but like the fact that she's lumping in female pleasure, which is like a natural, hopefully thing, with like I'm gonna murder you, woman, because you're a whore, and watch me strangle you. That's like inherently a problem. Is yeah. saying that those two things are the same. Huge problem. Huge problem. I even think Shout at the Devil's, you know, like like yelling at the devil or this like kind of fake Satan worship shit is like whatever. I don't think that should be lumped in with like violent songs either. But whatever. That's not the that's not what this episode's about. Right. But equating female masturbation to murder and violence against women. Yeah. And it's that that is the weirdest thing because it's saying like you could either get aroused or. Or be murdered, and those are those are equally, <laughs> equally bad. As to me. bad, yeah. There, what is what would her her sex life must be horrible? Oh yeah, fuck yeah. I, I don't know. I think Al Gore fucks though. Not her. Yeah, I don't. I think he's just like lays. I think he's good in bed. You, you do. heard it here first. I think Al Gore's good in bed. Yeah, I do him. You do him. <laughs> Great. Back to Tipper. This kind of rock music is only part of an escalating trend toward the use of more explicit sex and graphic violence as entertainment industry as entertainment industry offerings, from movies and videos to jeans and perfume ads. Music is the most unexpected medium, and rock and roll and rock music has shown perhaps the least willingness to exercise self-restraint. Has it? 
according to this unsubstantiated <laughs> claim from Tipper Gore. Yeah. She'll make some more unsubstantiated claims later. Don't worry. Okay. But virtually... This is still Tipper, but in virtually every medium, the communications industry offers increasingly explicit images of sex and violence to younger and younger children. In the course of my work, I've encountered a degree of callousness towards children that I never imagined existed. No one asks what is in the product or its side effect on kids, only how well it will sell. The dilemma for society is how to preserve personal and family values in a nation of diverse tastes. Tensions exist in any free society, but the freedom we enjoy rests on a foundation of individual liberty and shared moral values. Even as the shifting structure of the family and other social changes disrupt old patterns. We must reassert our values through individual and community action. People of all political persuasions, conservatives, moderates, and liberals alike need to dedicate themselves once again to preserving the moral foundation of our society. Censorship is not the answer. In the long run, our only hope is for more information and awareness so that citizens and communities can fight back against market exploitation and find practical means for restoring individual choice and control. Um, that was so long that I lost my train of thought like six different times. I'm sorry. Okay, it's not a callousness towards children. It's a callousness toward women. Okay. Now, I'm not saying... Th- and this song is one shining example that doesn't seem to be that way. Right. Uh, but, you know, usually the songs are derogatory towards women. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they have to put out or be a slut. It's just like very mixed messaging in music. And it's the sexual messaging for girls who are brought up on pop music. You have to somehow miraculously teeter some fine line beside, between like doing it in the back of the Yukon and not being a whore. Yeah. And, and so she's like, kind of lumping violence in with this which like we've said we both kind of take issue with and sexual violence which is marketed toward both men and women as like a good thing is what she's saying that like rock music is marketing sexual violence to kids as like hey kids do some sexual violence which i think what is sexual violence rape like yeah rape okay That's, again, violence against women. I'm not saying there are no men out there who are raped, but I, I would say the yeah, statistics yeah. are pretty clear. And, and, the, and, the, and the pictures that they almost always portray is a powerful man taking what he wants from a powerless woman. Right. Blurred lines. Um, blurred lines. Versus certain songs which, like, don't do that, like Darling Nikki. Right. Like, Darling Nikki had autonomy and made the choice to get fucked and fuck someone. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, this, the outrage, this is from USA Today. The outrage of, about Darling Nikki led to the formation of the Parents Music Resource Center, a group organized by Tipper Gore and other prominent women in Washington, D.C. So, once again, this is like a weird gender roles thing, too, where it's the Parents Music resource center but it was only prominent women who led it so like because parenting is a woman's job right right uh tipper and other prominent women in washington dc in their bid to raise awareness about sexual content in pop songs the parents music resource 
Center issued a list of the filthy 15, the songs that they found most objectionable. Do you want oh, yes, 15 I to do. 1? Yes, I do. So, number 15, Shebop by Cindy Lauper. Because apparently Shebop is about masturbation. Tune in for a future lyrics for Horrifying. lunch episode. That horrible, horrible masturbation. Yeah. The next one is uh, a band called Venom and a song called Possessed. And I don't, it just says for a cult. I've never heard the song before, but there you go. The uh, next one is Mary Jane Girls and the song is In My House for sex. Black Sabbath for the song Trashed. Number 11 is Merciful Fate Into the Coven, which is for a cult. And now we're starting to get into songs that I have heard before other than Shebop. Uh, so next at number 10 is Def Leppard's High and Dry for drug and alcohol use. Wasps, animal, parentheses, fuck like a beast for <laughs> sex. I wanna, is that I want to fuck you like an animal? No, that's Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> oh, okay. Madonna's Dress You Up is number eight. Wanna dress you up in my love. Why? That song's delightful. Sex is what it says on the list. <laughs> Just sex. Twisted Sisters, We're Not Gonna Take It for violence because then we'll talk about this a little in a little bit but because the video was violent not because the song itself was violent because women sticking up for themselves yeah and it was like anti-establishment yeah so i think that she didn't she didn't like that uh number six is acdc's let me put my love into you hmm. i feel like if you end that with a question mark all the who are we're fine <laughs> Uh, Motley Crue's Bastard at number five for violence. Vanity's Strap On, Robbie Baby for sex. Mm. Judas Priest's Eat Me Alive. Sheena Easton's Sugar Walls. And number one, Prince's Darling Nikki. Number one! Number one. This was the whole thing. That slut bag Nikki. So, So USA Today says censorship of rock and roll is as old as the art form itself. Elvis Presley's second single, Good Rockin' Tonight, was banned in Houston in 1950 because certain lyrics were seen as su- too suggestive. The Everly Brothers' Wake Up Little Susie was banned in Boston. I have no idea what? why. Wake Up Little Susie because I have morning wood? I guess so. Yeah, Wake <laughs> Up to Have Sex, Little Susie? I don't know. Uh, but How this was little different. was she? Mm, yeah, hopefully 18 and, and consenting. Uh, but this was different. This was the wife of an influential senator leaning on the music industry to label albums as being inappropriate for minors. And when you have the political connections of a Tipper Gore, you can back up your activism with a Senate hearing. We'd seen it all before in other media. Industries fearful of government regulation quickly rally to impose self-regulation. And that's why movies are rated and why comic books you read as a kid bore the legend of the Comics Code Authority, which doesn't, doesn't exist. I don't know who USA Today is writing toward, but it's not us. Um, predictably enough, the Record Industry Association of America, the RIAA, a trade group, was quick to propose its own labeling system. but the Senate hearing in 1985, in September of 1985, went on, right? And it was, it was weirdly before the Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee. Why? Well, we'll find out. Uh, that's the only like, person that would take a hearing with her? Also, side question. How many children yes. does she have? And how uh, old she, are they? She, so, t- so Tipper Gore has several daughters. There is... Al Gore the third, which is a, a son. 
Karina Gore, Sarah Gore, and Kristen Gore. So three daughters and a son. I feel like she's just trying to make up for the fact that their last name is Gore. Yeah, maybe. So in the at the Senate hearing, oh, I get it. No, I know. Oh, it has been gotten. Oh, I know. I just you know had to have a little more fun with that. Great. Um, so three high-profile musicians came to the Senate hearing. The first was Twisted Sisters frontman D. Snyder. D. Snyder. D. Snyder. And so he underwent questioning about his uh, the Twisted Sister song "Under the Blade," which is about like getting cut open. And he was like, "Yeah, it's about me being afraid of surgery, you idiots." And Frank Zappa was frank zappa so frank zappa was like us for those of you who don't know was like a weird avant-garde musician and basically like a circus front man without a circus and so this is his quote at the senate hearing the 898 purchase price does not entitle you to a kiss on the foot from the composer or performer in exchange for a spin on the family vitrola Taken as a whole, the complete list of PMRC demands reads like an instruction manual from some sinister kind of toilet training program to housebreak all composers and performers because of the lyrics of a few. Ladies, how dare you? It's ridiculous that we have normalized the complaints of a few to Mm -hmm. censor and control the will of the many. I mean, right now we're just talking about music, but Oh, we've never done this in any other way since then. Right. We're like literally still battling for a woman's right to choose. Like, Hey, tipper, don't buy this music for your kids. Also, if you don't like abortions, don't get one. That's it. Yeah. I mean, this is like a, there's literally people dying. Kim moment. There's there's a lot more fish fry. And also, I mean, you bring a, up a good point about the kind of the entertainment industry in general, which is like a loud vocal minority will sway that there's a few of them, but they care just so much. And so they'll sway the the direction of the an entire industry of artists. Um, and that's, you know, fucked up. It's not not how you should do it. And a lot of times they sway it away from any kind of progress. You see this with like people being really upset that there are powerful women in Star Wars and so we got to undo that. And yeah, it's pretty pretty shitty. So the senators were not impressed with Frank Zappa. Senator Slade Gorton, I honestly I don't didn't really even need to read this sentence, but I just wanted to read the name Senator Slade Gorton. <laughs> Senator Slade Gorton called Zappa boorish and said he'd give the First Amendment a bad name if he had any understanding of it. Also not true, but okay. Yeah, super, super not true. <laughs> uh, the record company, so so the record industry had a really good reason to stay on the good side of the Senate and the PMRC because they were lobbying on a tax on blank cassette tapes. And they were, they were arguing that the, that the, the tape recording was eating into the record industry's profits and the Senate committee on commerce, science and transportation was where that legislation was going to be considered. So what they're talking about, like you get a blank cassette tape, you go home, you record stuff off the radio, or maybe you make a CD compilation if you have a fancy. Okay. There was just an on the media about how the cassette tape changed everything. 
And so this is like as it's happening, you know, a, a lot of these cultural things happen at the apex of like a te- technological advance too. And so that is why this was being held in the Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee because coincidentally, the committee members were Al Gore, mm. Ernest Hollings, John Danforth, and they were all married to PMRC members. Shaking my head. Why? So why? Tell me. <laughs> Let's talk. This is not democracy, my friends. No, this <laughs> is like weird kind of conservative oligarchy. And it's it's also kind of strange that we like viewed Al Gore as like our last progressive hope in the early 2000s. Did we? I mean, I, we kind of did. Against George W. Bush, at least. I, I mean, I wanted him to win, but I didn't think it was great. Given the financial threat, the record industry was willing to throw the basic principles of free expression under the bus if it meant Congress was going to vote their way quickly on the blank tape tax. And when the committee called for hearings on the problematic music lyrics, the PMRC members paraded child health care experts and religious figures in front of the Senate to testify on the dangers of all these lyrics. Are you fucking kidding me? Who? I don't have names, but a child psychologist, I'm sorry, a child psychiatrist testified that the notorious son of Sam killer, David Berkowitz, was known to listen to Black Sabbath, once fronted by the most frightening to parents avatar of 80s metal, Ozzy Osbourne, which we know is not true. He listened to Hall and Oates. We do know that, thanks to you. Um, You're welcome. Speaking of Hall and Oates, I've got a bone to pick about that whole episode. Okay. Is, is now the perfect time to do it? Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned at the end for Lindsay's bone to pick about Hall and Oates. No, we're going to do it right now. It's small. It's short. The whole Tell thing me. is that they wrote the song about a dude. Then mm-hmm. they're like, uh, it doesn't sound as believable. No one's going to like want to hear a rich guy. So we made it a girl because it's a fucking sexist patriarchal society. None of this was ever discussed in the episode. I was like raging my brain. Well, don't go on vacation. Like, we both have our sticks. Like yours is murdery weirdo stuff. Mine's slightly feminism rants. But you could have at least touched upon it. Yes. That's all you have to say about that? I mean, I no, I agree with you. It's it's truly not something that occurred to me, especially because the Hall, uh, Daryl Hall's explanation was so great, which is it sounded better as girl. And that's airtight. Um, no, you're absolutely right that it's like easier to throw s- judgmental stones at women in music. And like rely on your daddy's money, like the whole thing. It wasn't just like it's the word girl sounded better than guy. It was the whole fucking idea. It was the whole story that they were selling sounded better if it's about a woman from taking yeah. her daddy's money. I have I have no... I, I will not even think about uh, disagreeing with that because you're right. All right. Back to Tipper. Back to Tipper. It's unclear which popular musicians were invited, but the only ones to show up, I don't, it's unclear whether Prince was even invited to this shit, but the ones that showed up were Zappa, Snyder, and weirdly, John Denver. John Denver. 
John Denver was an openly devout Christian, the kind of person who'd fit the profile of someone who'd be outraged by rock lyrics, poisoning the mind of the youth. But in his statement, John Denver said clearly that a government-policed record-labeling system would approach censorship, which he opposed. Because he's writing Rocky Mountain High, and he's like, it's not about drugs. Literally, that's my next sentence. He spoke firsthand (laughs) of his experience with censorship and the absurdity of authority figures determining the value of his song lyrics. One of Denver's signature songs is Rocky Mountain High, and it was banned from radio stations supposedly because of drug references. But there were no drug references. The song was about the elation and joy of living that comes from spending a moonless and cloudless night in the rocky mountains yes confirmed i don't i don't i that can't be true he that he had that has to be an actually a drug song i just fucking love nature is like not okay thorough (laughs) i mean it's not like weed was legal back then that's true denver was quoted as saying what assurance have i that any national panel to review my music would make any better judgment denver referred to a self-appointed moral watchdog as something counter to the ideals of a democratic society he even likened the suppression of words and ideas to nazi germany oh you said there would be no nazis today well yeah (laughs) turns out tipper gore Uh, And then dramatically, Denver excused himself from the hearing because he had a previously scheduled meeting with NASA in an attempt to get himself sent into space on the space shuttle Challenger. Oh, I guess he lucked out. Yeah, he super lucked out that he was late to that call. Uh, In the end, most of the record industry voluntarily, in quotes, agreed to help label uh, agreed to label tapes and cds that had included explicit language and sexual content this wasn't a consumer friendly gesture by a civic by civic minded record companies this was the u.s government regulating media through the threat of litigation despite the first amendment's prohibition against government control of the content and like weirdly like through kind of taxing and and kneecapping the industry it's all fucking commerce and capitalism anyway Another, uh, you're wrong about staple. It was capitalism all along. Yeah, and it's it's definitely a form of oppression when you look at it, right? It's like, oh, yes. we're gonna slap explicit lyrics on all of these uh, artists that we don't like, and so their sales are gonna go down because all the Karens of the world aren't gonna buy them for their kids. And I'm not like one for slippery slope arguments, but this is like we're on the slope, like because it's it's sexually liberated women and it's also sexual violence and we're making those things the same for whatever reason and it's murder and we're making that the same thing and like these people aren't like enlightened unracist people so like the second someone comes out with a song about like how black people shouldn't take shit from white people or whatever it is like that that's going to get censored to all hell because it's a threat to the people in power same as As we're not going to take it it, right Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, same as we're not going to take it. That w- That's not a violent song, but it was just anti-establishment. And so they're like, it's like number five on the top. The uh, It's number seven on the filthy 15. It's infringement of freedom of speech. It certainly is. But you wouldn't know the First Amendment if it <laughs> bit you on the ass, said Senator Gort. What's his fucking name? Slade Gorton? Slater Gortex. Slater Gortex. Um... The bigger problem, though, is what came next. Rather than embracing the labeling system and rewarding responsible record companies, major retailers like Walmart 
refuse to stock CDs with parental advisory stickers. That means in order to get those albums into stores, record companies had to censor lyrics, producing clean versions that were a far cry from the artist's intent. And so now we have like a cast system of the clean songs that can be sold anywhere and the self-labeled dirty songs, even if your record has one fuck in it or one shit in it or one maybe you should not listen to the cops all the time in it now you can't be sold in some of the biggest stores in in america oppression that's what i just said you're i mean you're right and emboldened walmart even demanded artwork changes from some albums including an album cover by john mellencamp that depicted john mellencamp with christ and the devil standing by his side walmart can suck my dick walmart can suck your dick they're taking this advantage. This episode is sponsored by. <laughs> they're like the number one offender of taking advantage of the American people, and they're like, um, "We're just here trying to be wholesome with our John Mellencamp album." Yes. Okay, back to Diffuser and back to Darling Nikki. Ultimately, what is most surprising about Darling Nikki and much of Prince's work is how female sexuality is used as an empowering mechanism. This is what we've been talking about the entire time. In 1984, there weren't too many songs where women were the sexual aggressors, unless you think of songs like Billie Jean, in which a sexually aggressive woman is cast as a conniving vixen attempting to pin a baby on Michael Jackson. Prince's Nikki is sexually forward, turns out, turns Prince out and leaves Prince bewildered. However, Prince looks back on the experience fondly and unashamedly, and the door is left open for further experiences. Come again. Come again. Thank you for a funky time. (laughs) Uh, Upon further reflection, Prince was singing about what he called pussy control. And uh, he he coined that term in. So Prince was singing about pussy control. And he gave that. He like coined that term on his 1995 album, The Gold Experience. So please tell me more. Is the pussy controlling him? Yeah, yeah. But like in a good way. So it's not like mind control where he's controlling the pussy. The pussy is controlling him. Yeah. Pussy power. Pussy power. Um, When Al Gore was elected as Bill Clinton's vice president in 92 and 96, Tipper launched a campaign to promote the concerns of the mentally ill and was active in efforts to help the homeless and improve education. She resigned from the PMRC, which had lost its momentum as more strident groups took up the cause. And during her husband's presidential campaign in 2000, she moderated her stand on explicit material to keep from alienating the music industry. So her convictions weren't that strong. Yeah, now why is she all worried about alienating the music industry? Well, because she doesn't, she, she's worried about uh, the vote in 2000, which didn't really go their way in the first place. Well, it did, but it didn't, you know. I was there. The weirdest thing about all this is for all the fear of like satanic messages and backward masking, you know, backward masking, like backward messages in, in the record, mm-hmm. there is back masking in Darling Nikki. There is? Yes. Really? Would you like to hear it? Yes, I would. So at the very end of the song, there is a backwards message that you hear. And, uh, and we're going to listen to it played forward. This is, this is Darling Nikki played. It, the end of Darling Nikki played in reverse. 
You just said we were going to listen to it played forward. We're going to listen to the backwards message played forward. We're double reversing. Reverse, reverse. Hello, how are you? You have any more gum? <laughs> so the lyrics are, hello, how are you? I'm fine because I know the Lord is coming soon. It's about Jesus and Christianity. Or did he know he was going to die? No, he didn't. Are you sure? <laughs> Maybe. 30 years before? So Prince Rogers <laughs> Williams a premonition. was... <laughs> Prince Rogers Williams was raised a Seventh-day Adventist. He invented fentanyl. He did. Ugh. So you know some things about Prince. I didn't say I knew nothing about Prince. I said I didn't know anything about Charlie Nikki. So real quick, Prince was raised in a chaotic home. His parents were members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's a socially conservative Christian group. And when you're talking about, quote, when you're talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists, they share a lot of the same core beliefs. This is from Sally Berenger Gordon, who teaches religion at the University of Pennsylvania. They were working toward the end of time. Salvation is the key effort for every human being, and bringing souls to God is the most important thing. So this is what he was raised with. By the early 80s, with the release of three consecutive albums, Dirty Mind, Controversy, in 1999, adherence to the faith of his childhood seemed to be behind Prince. He wore makeup and heels. He performed in unbuttoned blouses his lyrics pushed boundaries of gender gender and sexual propriety a la darling nikki still he kept god in the picture Contra- the album controversy includes the lord's prayer and 1999 narrates a judgment day where life is just a party but parties weren't meant to last quote he created a cosmology and spiritual outlook that made sense to him. And this is from uh, someone named Torre, who is the author of the Prince biography, I Would Die For You. His way of explaining that the great blessing to himself was he was blessed by God. He was anointed. His work and his creative life was proof of God and God was working through him. So in the mid 80s, Prince was introduced to the Jehovah's Witnesses by Larry Graham, who was the bassist for Sly and the Family Stone. Other famous Jehovah's Witnesses are, were Michael Jackson, Venus and Serena Williams, and the notorious B.I.G. Really? Yeah. Uh, he described this transition of faith. He, he said, the more he said, the more I realized the truth. The more he being the bassist from Sly and the Family Stone. While Prince while Prince is telling this new religion, um, while, while in Prince's telling, this new religious commitment was sim- simply a question of hearing the truth, the years leading up to it were tumultuous. He changed his name to a symbol. He married for the first time in early 96. His son, boy Gregory, was born eight months later, but died within a week from a rare disease. He was divorced in 99 and then remarried in 2001. 
Now, wasn't the symbol sort of like that crossy thing that was on fire last week? Oh, it was not the crossy thing that was on fire, but we will talk about the symbol in three paragraphs. It's very cross-like. It is cross-like. With a loop But on it's the not a cross. Okay. So at the end of 2001, Prince released his 24th album, The Rainbow Children. And the there's like kind of a concept album recounting an apocalyptic utopian sort of happening in its review. Rolling Stone referred to Prince as the freak in the pulpit. Is that polite? I don't know. He cut a number of songs from his repertoire that he deemed too explicit and even stopped swearing. So, so he, he's Jesus-y now. He's Jesus-y now. Because of Sly and the Family Stone. Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot. Um, and Paisley Park, his like recording studio, which always had been alcohol and drug-free, felt to many more like a junior high dance than a sex-drenched den of sin from years past. Oh. It used many, to be a sex-drenched den of sin, but now... Yeah. Well, it was always, I guess it was always Boys drug on and alcohol side, free. Girls on the other. Yeah. Leave room for Jesus. Yeah. For many in the Jehovah's Witness community, having a freak in the pulpit as their most high profile member was bizarre. This is from a, uh, a guy named Gregorio Smith. He says, I wouldn't have been allowed to listen to Prince as a kid because he was so sexually charged. Gregorio Smith made a documentary critical of the Jehovah's Witness church called truth be told and he says i remember learning the lyrics verbatim to when doves cry but only listening at school because i knew i couldn't sing those lyrics out loud at home (laughs) it seemed to prince that the jehovah's witness face helped explain the growing social injustice around him when mark brown interviewed prince in 2004 for the rocky mountain news prince told brown that he was interested in spirituality and the answers not strange ceremonies or theories i'm very practical he said you go trekkie on me i gotta go was Mark Brown a Trekkie? No, but I think he means like if the ceremonies get weird and Star Trek like, he's out. I get it. I don't. Yeah, I. I don't know. I don't know if our I, Mark Brown was a Trekkie. So this is our little bonus episode: Prince and the name thing. What do you know about Prince and the name thing? I mentioned it like very briefly in the Taylor Swift episode. Sure, there was some kind of he was embroiled in something with his record label. They na- they owned the name Prince, so he changed his name. I don't know which one came first, the artist formerly known as Prince, which then just became an acronym, or the symbol, which I think fans called it the love symbol. Yeah, 100%. So it was the symbol came first. In 93, Prince announced that he would no longer go by the name Prince, but rather by a love symbol, <laughs> which was a mashup of the gender symbols for man and woman, which ah, is why it's on the cross. Okay. It is, but it isn't. It is an unpronounceable symbol whose meaning has not been identified. It's all about thinking in new ways, turning to a new frequency. He wrote in a statement, frequency, F-R-E-E-quency. Super freak. He's super frequency. So according to Neil Carlin, who is a former Rolling Stone writer, he was one of the few journalists that Prince gave access to. They wrote a full explanation for the name change, and they buried it in a time capsule at Paisley Park. Wait, what? Was, <laughs> yep. Why haven't we dug this up? <laughs> I don't this think episode is incomplete. Been, this episode is very incomplete. <laughs> Give me a plane ticket. <laughs> We're going to Minnesota. Fuck yeah. Um, so, so he he said, 
So he said, cautions Carlin, I never went for any groundbreak. So this could be a lie. Okay. Uh, the, the decision was derided as crazy and ridiculous. Record sales declined. And it presented all kind of logistical problems for the media, resulting in the clumsy title, The Artist Formerly Known as Prince. Yeah. In 99, he, he was on an interview with Larry King, and he explained his reasoning, which was, I wanted to move to a new plateau in my life. And one of the ways in which I did that was to change my name to sort of divorce me from my past. That's not the real reason, though. So you're exactly right. The symbol was a rebellion against his record label, Warner Records. He first signed with the company back in 77 while he was still a teenager and produced Purple Rain and Sign of the Times and all all these other records. He was, this is from Vox, he was constantly creating new music and he wanted to release as much of it as possible. And at the time of the name change, he owed Warner Records five more albums and he had this vault of unreleased songs which apparently still exists and it had like 500 songs so the problem has like an easy 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 solution right he's just like let's take you know 50 of these 500 songs and put them out yeah but warner brothers was worried about flooding the market with prince's music and so prince wanted out of the record contract because he believed that the music industry was inherently corrupt with power accumulating in the hands of a few individuals and that power should be restored to the artist right Mm -hmm. so music musical socialism he was like super psyched on napster by the way (laughs) and so he wanted to take 500 of those unreleased uh some of those songs put them on cds and be done with his contract and they warner wanted to just space the albums out to create like the usual press build up and blah 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 around and have tours and etc etc and so, like, now, instead of being done in six months, he'll be done in, like, five and a half years or so. Okay. Which is not great for him. From the BBC, he felt the contracts at the time were onerous and burdensome, says John Kellogg, assistant chair of the Music Business Management Department at Berkeley College of Music. He rebelled against that. Some of the ways he rebelled against that, he compared, he compared his contractual obligations to slavery and began performing with the word slave on his cheek. He saw his own name as part of the contractual entrapment. Not sure about this. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, I I get it, but like, check your privilege a little. Yes, check your privilege. Warner Brothers took the name, trademarked it, and used it as the main marketing tool to promote all the music that I wrote. And this is what Prince said in the press release. The company owns the name Prince and all related music marketed under Prince. I became merely a pawn used to produce more mu- more money for Warner Brothers. See, I'm back on I'm back on his side. You were you were ever off Prince's side? Well, when he writes slave. When he wrote slave, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um momentary lapse of judgment. Yeah, 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 yeah. That he did repeatedly. Uh <laughs> Vox Vox says now it's worth noting Prince never came out and said he was trying to anger Warner Brothers or the music division with the name change, but he he hinted as much many times. The fact that he returned to using his name Prince in 2000 after he'd been released from his contract suggests that this was the reason for the name change all along. But because the name change, Warner got a ton of uninvited, mostly negative publicity about their artist who was supposed to be one of their top tier performers. Warner had to deal with Prince's suggestions that music made by him after the name change wasn't actually by Prince. That likely would have held up in court because if Prince has made a 
objective is to irritate Warner Brothers, that would be a good way to do it. After the change, Warner Brothers had to mail out floppy disks to... (laughs) This is my favorite. This is the pettiest fucking shit, and I love it so much. (laughs) After the change, Warner Brothers had to mail out floppy disks to news organizations featuring a font that allowed them to represent the symbol. Because the symbol itself... The the symbol itself can't be typed. So that's why people call it the symbol or call him the artist. So there's like no, what do you call it? What did you, what what are those things used to be called? Like a, like a wing ding. Something like that. Yeah. No. Okay. This is like the petty Olympics. All of these were minor irritants in and of themselves, but combined together, they surely frustrated Warner Brothers greatly. Wow. The two sides eventually came to an understanding, one that included a greatest hits album, which is a classic move for an artist trying to burn off a contract. Uh, But it still took Prince years to get out of the contract. Those with the power had won, and he would seek to maintain as much control over his music as possible, including being reluctant to allow his music to appear on most online platforms for the rest of his life. So 2000, he goes back to using his name, which freed him to innovate in new ways of making money as an independent artist. This is John Kellogg, the guy who is from Berkeley College of Music. He says, what a lot of people don't understand is that Prince was not only one of the greatest creative musical talents of the 20th century, but he was also one of the greatest music business innovators of the 20th century. Prince produced music on his own independent label. He bundled exclusive LPs with concert tickets and newspapers. He became one of the first artist to sell an album online and won a webby lifetime award for visionary use of the internet to distribute music love that yeah in 2015 when he announced that he would be releasing new music exclusively with jay-z's streaming service title he repeated the same slavery comparison that he used back in the early 90s he said record contracts are just like i'm gonna say the word slavery this is what he said to rolling stone i would tell any young artist don't sign but just like his sexually explicit lyrical content prince also went back on his hatred for warner brothers records according to abc news just in time for the 30th anniversary of purple rain in 2014 prince re-signed with warner records and the pair released a deluxe reissue of purple rain why money i guess I think I think if he wanted to cash in, I I have a feeling that Warner was going to do this with or without him. And so he was like, fine, I'll sign off on this and give me some money. Oh, OK. In 2013, Prince gave away his album to the readers of the Daily Mirror. Confusingly, the album was called 2010, but he gave it away for free to the to the UK readers of the Daily Mirror. And he said, I hope you like it. He told a reporter from the Mirror. It's great that it will be free to readers of your newspaper. I really believe in finding new ways to distribute my music. He said the Internet is completely over. Oh, I don't see why I should give my new music to iTunes or anyone else. They won't pay me in advance for it. And they get angry when they can't get it. Hmm. That's so true exactly and this is like kind of the fight that people were having with spotify just yeah taylor swift was having spotify just this last year then in 2015 he released a single exclusively on spotify and then that was in july 2015 and in december 2015 he released that uh 12 song album on title and said don't sign record contracts so this is from rock celebrities in 2003 the foo fighters covered darling nikki i knew this 
Yes. They reached out to Prince to ask for permission for an official release in the U.S., but Prince refused. So during an interview, they did it anyway. During an interview, Prince slammed the Foo Fighters and said, I don't like anyone covering my work. Write your own tunes. And then he added that when he wants to hear some new music, he goes and he makes some himself. Aww. You want to hear uh, the Foo Fighters, darling Nikki? Yeah. I didn't realize how old this was. This song. Yeah. Why is there meat? Medium rare. I think that was the name of the like album. It's like a B-Sides album or something. Lady Gaga's underwear. Sure. I definitely remember hearing this on the radio. You could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating with a magazine. She said, How'd you like to waste some time? And I could not resist when I saw little Nikki cry. I like it. Yeah. So, four years later, in 2007, Prince covered a Foo Fighters song, The Best of You, during his Super Bowl halftime performance, and this confused the Foo Fighters. Very much. They didn't, they didn't know whether he did it out of spite or, like, reverence to, like, bury the hatchet. Right. But nonetheless, they were super jazzed that, you know, the Prince was singing their song. So this is this is Prince singing best of you. So around the same time this happened, this is kind of a longer clip, but it's Dave Grohl talking about <laughs> the time that he ran into Prince and they kind of buried the hatchet. This is from the Grammy salute to Prince. Posthumously? Posthumously, yeah. Posthumously. <laughs> I'd seen Prince play before. I grew up listening to his music. And then he did this 21-night run at the Forum in Los Angeles. So, of course, me and all of my friends are like, oh, my God, we got to go to at least one show. So we go down to one of the shows. We get in this big party bus, like 20 people. So by the time we pull up to the forum, I'm, like, hammered. Okay, we've been partying the whole way in traffic down to the forum. We get to the forum. We go up to the little, like, VIP club thing. And our security guy, Kerwin, who also works with Prince, worked with Prince, comes up and says, hey, he knows you're here. He's going to call you up to jam. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm already, like, I've had one too many already. I'm not going up there with Prince like this. 
Anybody else in the world, I would jump up on stage and make a mess. But Prince, no way. So after the show, uh, Kerwin says, hey, he wants to meet you. I said, all right. And so he's like, stand over here. And there was kind of like these curtain things. He's just going there. And I open up this curtain, and there's Prince and Sheely. And I'm just like, like my 80s brain exploded. I'm like, hey, what's up? And we start talking. And uh, he said, yeah, we should jam sometime. And I said, I said, absolutely. He goes, when do you want to jam? And I said, it's your show. Like, you're here for a month. What do you think? He goes, come back Friday. I said, cool. So I call my manager on Monday. And I'm like, oh, my God, dude, I'm going to jam with the Prince. I can't believe it. I just talked to him. This is amazing. He goes, I know. We sent him your phone number. And I sat with that phone in my hand for a week on vibrate, sleeping with it near my head, the whole thing, waiting for him to call. He never called. So finally, by Thursday, um, I'm calling people like, what is he, like, what am I doing? Am I playing guitar? Am I playing drums? Are we doing a Prince song? Are we doing a Foo Fighters song? What are we doing? And they're like, just go down there. So that Friday, I go down there, pull into the arena. Kerwin says, he's not sound checking today. His voice is messed up. I'm like, okay, great. I go into catering, I eat something, and I think, okay, I'm just gonna go check to see if my gear is here. I walk out of the arena, there's empty arena, the forum, it's empty. And I'm talking to my guitar tech, and all of a sudden, just like that SNL skit with Maya Rudolph, he just like appears. And I was like, he's wearing these like purple pajama things. And he goes, hey, man. I'm like, hey. He goes, what are you doing here? And I said, I thought we were gonna jam. And he goes, you want to jam? I said, yeah. He goes, you want to play drums? I said, yeah. So I get up on his drummer's drum set. It's insane. Like, I play a little, I play a four-piece drum set. This thing was like, it had 15 cymbals and shit. It was crazy. So I sit down, I start playing. He's kind of watching me. Then he looks at his bass player. He's like, give me the bass. And he picks up the bass and he starts playing bass. And now we're playing together. And he's kind of checking me out. And he's like throwing hand signal chord signs. Like, a or C, and this turns into this thing. No empty arena, dude. Like nobody in there. I'm like, oh, God, this is amazing. It was amazing. And then we end, and we're, like, wow. we're all like high fiving each other. And he goes, man, you got a heavy foot. And I was like, yeah, I got a heavy foot. This is amazing. Then he picks up a guitar and starts playing a whole lot of love by Led Zeppelin. He's like, wow, So I'm like, and it was. Awesome. It sounded so good. It was amazing. We do that for like eight minutes. I'm like, oh God, this is the best band I've ever been in my life. This is unbelievable. And then we end it and he's like, man, that's amazing. We should do that. I'm like, yeah, we should do that. And he goes, what are you doing next week? And I never saw him again. <laughs> I had a school fundraiser. The end. Hundred <laughs> percent. So, in April of 2016, Prince saw Michael T. Schulenberg, a doctor of family medicine in the Twin Cities. Um, he saw him on April 7th, and then April 20th. On April 7th, he postponed two performances at the Fox Theater in Atlanta, and he, he said that he had a. He released a statement saying that he had the flu. 
and he rescheduled the performance for April 14th, which turned out to be his final show. Uh, he still wasn't feeling well, and he flew back to Minneapolis early the next morning, and he became unresponsive. His private jet made an emergency landing at the Quad City International Airport in Illinois, Moline, Illinois. He was hospitalized. He received naloxone, which is a medication used to block opioids, especially following like a drug overdose. He became conscious again. He left under against medical advice and representatives said that he had suffered from dehydration and had the flu. That was like his reps said that. Mm -hmm. And the next day he was seen bicycling in his hometown. Okay. He shopped that evening at the Electric Fetus, which is a record store. He made a brief appearance in an impromptu dance party at Paisley Park Recording Studio. And he said he was feeling fine. On April 19th, he attended a performance at the Dakota Jazz Club. And on April 20th, Prince's representatives called Howard Kornfeld, who's a California specialist in addiction medicine and pain management, to seek help for Prince Kornfeld scheduled to meet with him on April 22nd and contacted a local physician who cleared his schedule for a physical exam on the 21st. And on the 21st at 9.43 a.m., the Carver County Sheriff's Office received a 911 call requesting an ambulance be sent to Paisley Park. The caller initially told the dispatcher that an unidentified person at the home was unconscious and then moments later said he was dead and finally Mm. said that the person was Prince. The caller was Kornfeld's son who uh, had flown in with brupinorphine. If it ends in norphine, it's not good. Uh, That morning, he flew in with that morning to devise a treatment plan for opioid addiction and emergency responders found Prince unresponsive in an elevator, performed CPR, but a paramedic said that he was already dead for at least six hours. Shit. And they were unable to revive him. They pronounced him dead at 10.07 a.m., 19 minutes after their arrival. There were no signs of suicide or foul play. And a press release from the Midwest Medical Examiner's Office on June 2nd said that the musician had died of an accidental overdose of fentanyl at the age of 57. And this was 2016 when like mm-hmm. everyone thought that that was the worst year ever yeah. in existence, which was he, ha-ha. He and Bowie were protecting us from the demons. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what we're going to go out on this week is my favorite Prince guitar solo. Um, so this is uh, the 20th anniversary. This week is the 20th anniversary of George Harrison's passing as well. And they put on a concert for George and with George's son and Tom Petty and Prince. And Prince got the final guitar solo in While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Oh, my and favorite George song. My favorite George song. I mean, mine's pretty good, too. Um, but this song rules so fucking hard and uh and we're gonna listen to prince and we're gonna this is i saw this on tv this is before youtube and the thing that happens at the end of this video i'm like what and then i had to wait like 10 years before this showed up on youtube to to be sure that i saw what i thought i saw oh so i'm not gonna tell you what it is so we're gonna go out on prince playing while my guitar gently weeps at the concert for george So Tom Petty, Steve Winwood, Steve, Jeff Lynn, and others. 
and others. So where can people find us on the internet? Find us on the internet at lyricsforlunch.com. Our internet, our website is back up and running. I have been promised by Anchor that the support button is back in action. So if you'd like to support us, go to lyricsforlunch.com and click support. And find us on Twitter and Instagram at lyricsforlunch. And for longer and weirder stuff, shoot us an email at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast, but definitely on Apple, iTunes. Tell all of your friends tweet about us sing like about us from the high heavens like yes. and subscribe paint your car with lyrics for lunch on the back i agree if you want stickers or merch let us know this is my favorite guitar solo of all time I heard this song and I was like, what was that? Yeah, this shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> His kid looks so much like him. Yeah. He went Wait. to Brown. Did he really? Yeah. He's got to be around our age. He's a little bit older, a few years. I guess it's Daniel, maybe. Could be wrong. Alright, so things about to happen. Okay. And, and, I was like, what? Go. That's what I want to know. He just throws it up in the air and it never comes down. George caught it.